This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool, and he's also the advisor on Motley Fool's Rule Your Retirement newsletter. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to David Gardner. He's the co-founder and chief rule breaker at The Motley Fool. David has an amazing knack, I think I can say, for investing in companies that eventually change the way we live. And today, he's here to talk about what he believes the future is going to look like and the companies that will be driving innovation that we will use tomorrow and forever. It's very exciting times we live in. Very exciting. We're also going to answer a listener question about whether a Roth 401k is the way to go and meet this week's Money Moron. Those are two different people, by the way. The listener sent the question <laughs> in our later Money Moron. <laughs> All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Fool Answers. It's time for Answers Answers, where we give money answers to your money questions. And today's question comes from Mihul. He writes, I'm in my 20s and just starting out in my career. I'm looking over the 401k options, and it seems really obvious to me that I should choose the Roth 401k. One, I expect that my tax rate will only increase as I get older and make more money. Two, I don't expect income tax rates to decrease in the next 20 to 30 years. Three, I don't want the psychological burden of getting less money than my account says I have when I withdraw because I'd pay taxes on a regular 401k at withdrawn. Because it seems so obvious that a Roth 401k is the right choice, I have a feeling that I'm missing something. Are any of the above assumptions wrong? Uh, I would say, Mihul, that no, you are not missing anything. I think you're pretty spot on for you. So let's start for make sure everyone understands the difference between the Roth and the traditional. The traditional 401k, you put money in, you get a deduction, money grows tax deferred, but when you take it out in retirement, you pay taxes. Roth is the other way around. No deduction today, but when you take the money out, it's tax-free. The math of this is pretty simple. You're essentially asking yourself, am I going to be in a higher tax bracket in retirement or in a lower tax bracket? If you're going to be in a higher tax bracket in retirement, as Mahul assumes he's going to be, then you go with the Roth. If you're in a high tax bracket today, and you expect to be in a lower tax bracket in retirement, then the traditional is the way to go. Aren't most people in a lower tax bracket when they end up in retirement, or no? I'll address that by addressing. Right, I'm jumping the gun a little. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. Let me address the three points that he made. So, okay. first of all, he said, "I expect that my tax rate will only increase as I go, get older and make more money," and this is true. For most people, their incomes spike significantly in their 20s and then their 30s. They start to level off in their 40s and 50s, and people around their 50s is when they're making most of their money, their highest incomes. So, someone in their 20s, their income will definitely increase, as will their tax bracket. Number two, he said, I don't expect income tax rates to decrease in the next 20, 30 years. That's definitely true. We're at tax rates that are historically very low. Given government deficits, underfunded Social Security, underfunded Medicare, tax rates just have to go up. So, I think he's right on that. His third one, where he said, he's, I don't want the psychological burden of getting less money than my account says. What he's essentially saying, and this is something that a lot of financial advisors will say, if you own a traditional retirement account, you essentially have a co-owner. You own some of it, but so does Uncle Sam, because you're going to have to pay a bunch of it in taxes. He's saying, I want to know that when I look at my Roth 401k account balance and it says $100,000 or something like that, that's really his money. All mine. He's not going to pay any mine. taxes on that. Um, so I think that's another great point that he makes. Um, now. While I talked about that simple math of whether you're going to be in a lower tax bracket in retirement or not, 
For most people, yes. If they're in one tax bracket today while they're working, they retire next year, they're going to drop a couple of tax brackets. The real question is what tax rates are going to be in the future, given the federal deficits and things like uh, that. Okay. So I would say if you are in a high tax bracket today, it still makes sense to go traditional. If you're a middle tax bracket, which is around the 25% tax bracket, I would say going with the Roth makes sense because, especially if you are 10 to 20 years from retirement, I think you're going to be paying a higher rate than what today's retirees pay. So, is there anything wrong with having like a combination of I've got a little bit of Roth, I got a little bit of not Roth, I got a little bit of this and that? I mean, I think that is a great point. Hey, thank you. People will call that tax diversification. So, many people, even though from a numbers perspective, should stick with a traditional, they might start contributing to a Roth because they already have big traditional accounts. They want Roth accounts to be able to have some tax-free income in retirement, and they can manage their tax bill that way. So if for some reason one year they have a really high income, they can go with the Roth so they can get some of that tax-free income and manage their tax bill. In other years, maybe their income is lower, they'll take more out of the traditional because it won't be taxed as highly. Are there income limits on the Roth 401k? No. On the Roth 401k, there are no income limits, which is a, a great point because with the Roth IRA, there I am are. full of great points you are today. Just killing yes. it on the great pointage. Yes, with the Roth IRA, there are income limits, not in the Roth 401k. Um, I read a report the other day where only about half of people are covered by an employee account. Mm. Um, the other half, you might be able to open a solo 401k if you're working on your own. Um, and I bring this up because someone just emailed me the other day and said, I don't have a plan at work, and I make too much to contribute to the Roth IRA. To which I said, since you're self-employed, open a Roth solo 401k, and there are no income limits. All right. Well, that has been an excellent answer with many great points made by myself. So, <laughs> yay me. Uh, if you have a question, you can email us at answers at fool.com. We'll do our best to answer it. Um, it's hard for us to answer really, really specific personal finance advice, but if you got some general questions, just send them our way. And exciting news the show now has a Twitter account. We are at Answers Podcast. That's Answers Plural Podcast. And all three of us, Ro, Rick, and myself, will be populating it with tweets. It's a very exciting time. The future is, is brilliant, and it's here. And it's on Twitter. And in 140 characters or less. Right. Keep it tight. So, yeah, if you want to reach out to us on, on Twitter, go ahead and do that too at Answers Podcast. Motley Fool co founder David Gardner is really good at investing. It's true. But he's a humble guy, so I have to brag for him. The stock recommendations he's made over the last 20 years through our Stock Advisor newsletter have delivered average returns of 267% as of this taping. That's just crushing the market's 47% over the same time period. So, how does he do it? Well, he's got a knack for finding those disruptive companies that change the way we live. Companies like Netflix, which is up more than 5,000 percent since he first recommended it, and Priceline, which is up more than 4,000 percent. These are crazy numbers. He's joining us today to talk about what the future looks like and where he's investing. Is it all flying cars and colonizing the moon? And what exactly is the best way to invest in the imminent robotic uprising? Let's find out. David, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. 
on air. I, I'm happy to say that I see you both around Full HQ, and you're just as fun uh, off the air as you are on the air. But thank you so much for Motley Fool Answers and for all that you've done over the last year plus Aww, for thanks. a lot of people who are turning on and switching on to the idea that maybe taking some control, sometimes some control back of their financial lives, will indeed more than repay itself going forward. So. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, if oh, you're always so nice going to say thing. nice stuff like that, we're going to have you back more often. Every day. Every day. <laughs> Here's our moment of David Gardner saying how great we are. Go. Uh, so, like I said, today we're going to talk about the future. And I was thinking about how people thought the future was going to be back in the 50s and 60s. And so, one thing I did, I looked into was um, back in 1964 for the World's Fair. Um, sci-fi author Isaac Asimov wrote a piece for the New York Times with his predictions for 2014. And while we haven't colonized the moon, he did get a few things right. So I wanted to like call out some things that were some predictions he made and maybe not so great. So, I'd love to hear them. I love these these things. The people who were thinking about the future uh, 50 years ahead of time so smart so often. Yeah, yeah. What? And so, Tell what, me. so what's interesting is actually he kind of dialed back a few things. So he was a bit more like in, in the 60s, people were just going crazy for technology and the Jetsons was on TV and they had these wild dreams. And he actually dialed it back a little bit, and which made it more, more accurate. So first one, cars. He predicted that we would have self-driving cars. Uh, although he also thought that they would likely hover above the ground. <laughs> so so getting, I'll, getting give close. Him, I'll give him points for that, self-driving cars. Robots. He predicted that robots wouldn't be common nor very good in 2014, mm. which I thought was interesting because at the time everyone was thinking that our whole lives would be run by robots. And we'd work 20 hours a week because robots would be doing all the jobs. Yes, and that yeah. basically our lives would be an leisure. leisure and just basically herding robots and telling <laughs> robots what to do. Does for either us. of you have a robot in your life yet? Does our BB 8 count? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Our little toy BB-8. I, I don't know. He talks, right? He talks. Yeah. He, does, he does. He doesn't serve a purpose. Right. But, but neither the Southwicks nor the Brokamps have deployed a Roomba, for example. No. no. Okay. Yeah. No. There's got to be other. We haven't done it either. But but it, I mean, it's it's been a fairly successful consumer. Um, product, yeah, sure, but yeah, yeah they're sure. out there for some of us. All right, and the last one I wanted to point out was online education. He predicted that classrooms would be held through closed circuit TV, so basically the idea of a computer. But he also predicted that high school students will be taught how to use a computer, and they will all be fluent in all of the computer languages. Partially right. Partially right. I have a vision that for Hannah, when she is in high school, she will instead of taking Spanish, she will take. A computer language class, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so, anyway, I thought that was cool because he he was he was pretty right. Um, you know, I personally am excited about flying cars and all of that in the future. But, um, David, what what do you, what do you think about like? Oh, sorry, I don't know how exactly to phrase this because I don't want to be like the future talk. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, let me just say this: that one of the best ways to predict the future is to invent it. As, as has often been said, and I, there, there's a great Arthur Clarke who was who was an author as well, like Asimov. Um, I think if you go on YouTube and just Google Arthur Clarke, I'm going to say uh, this is made up, spontaneous here, so no fact checking. Okay. This is somewhere the somewhere in the early 1960s, around the same period, he did a BBC kind of a 10 minute what what I see of the future, and I think you can watch it on YouTube today. It's pretty remarkable. One of the things that he was talking about at, back then were satellites and how you know this will make it so that you no longer have to go to work every day. And part of it was that Clark helped invent, I think, 
the satellite. Like oh. he was one of the inventors. So when you're actually developing that stuff, it enables you certainly to make much better calls than people who are disconnected from it or kind of just guessing as, quote, futurists, end quote. So um, that's why I like Elon Musk a lot, because Elon Musk, while he is not technically the inventor for much of what he's working on, he is so um, inured to that, and he's so embedded in key technological trends that these are really valuable people when they talk about where the world is headed. So, right, right. Go so to yeah. the moon. I'll make a rocket myself. That's Why it. Not? So the big, the big <laughs> trick, Allison, is that you just need to invent, and then you can really make awesome predictions. Well, I'm I'm not a very good inventor. Neither so am I. That's why we're doing this podcast. That's why we're doing this right? podcast. So how do you? Because because a lot of people have made predictions that were pretty awful too. Um, how do you, when you're looking at technology, kind of separate? This is this is kind of crazy stuff. This is Jetson stuff that's never going to happen. Versus, you know what? I think this actually has some legs, and this really is the way the future. Um, so I, I don't think it's that easy to do anymore, and that's really my primary point um, because I think this is an important point that maybe not everybody shares this perspective. So if this adds value, I'll just say briefly that the the ability to predict where things are headed has been narrowing over the course of time dramatically. Like 3,000 years ago in ancient Egypt, you or I would have made a good prediction about where the world was headed in the next 100 years or so. We'd say our grandkids or great-grandkids, they'll probably be farming, and (laughs) irrigation will be important, and the Nile will want that to overrun its banks, and you would have made a good call. But as you fast forward through time, and uh, I grew up in the 1970s, and I would say back then you could have made about a a 20 to 25-year prediction decently. That's why, for people who are doing it 50 years ahead of time in the 1960s, that's really impressive to me. By the time we reached 19, I'm going to say 93, and here's a specific reason why, because there was an AT&T campaign in 1993, which you can watch on YouTube, and this one's definitely there, and I highly recommend it. Go Google 1993 AT&T ads. They were saying things like, how would you like to drive across the country without a map? You will, and AT&T will bring you there. Uh, And it was a series of ads where they were looking at life 10 years ahead of time, and literally within about 10 years, 1993 to 2003, GPS systems were in cars and ubiquitous. So you go back and watch those ads, it's hilarious because they totally nailed it. Of course, what's hilarious is AT&T didn't bring us any of those things. (laughs) They, they, They had Bell Labs, they had people who could see it, but they literally didn't create things like um, yeah, GPS. Um, so I would say the the window had narrowed to ten years. I would say today it's more like three to five years now. So if you think about that and the implications of that, you're seeing that it's increasingly difficult, specifically to know or say with confidence what the world will be like five years from today. It's very, it's much harder than it ever has been in in the course of human history. So that, I just think that's a profound point to recognize. For me, the investment implications as somebody who's trying to pick stocks within this is don't think about the trends so much or specific products. Ask yourself, who are the people that I want to be invested in? Uh, you mentioned, um, was it the cent- oh, uh, the World's Fair? What was it that you were quoting from? Um, this was from around 1964's World Fair. Yeah, it was the World Fair. So I, I was reading a book recently about the 1876 Centennial Exhibition, which was kind of the same thing. It was 100 years after the founding of America, and Alexander Graham Bell was there in a very small um, room. Think of like Consumer Electronics Show today, where there's like thousands of yards and lots of rooms everywhere. It was kind of like that back then in 1876, by the way. The Statue of Liberty's hand, that was all that was completed, and it was there, about <laughs> 20 feet tall. Just the hand was on. Uh, but Alexander Graham Bell was there um, being largely ignored, and he had the telephone, and he was showing, showing off to people. Um, 
So I, I, I'm not even sure really where I'm going with that, other than to say that it was a lot easier back then to kind of see where the world was headed. But the, the, the answer is, invest in Alexander Graham Bell. Invest in Elon Musk. Find the people, Reed Hastings, um, Jeff Bezos, find the people who truly are creating the future. That's a much more, to me, a sustainable way to invest successfully than to try to guess whether Roomba 4 is going to start to... Um, I don't know, go autonomous and, um, start and take taking over. over your house. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so, David, we received a question from a listener, Paul, which we thought you would be particularly well equipped to answer, probably because he calls you out by name. So, <laughs> Great. the question is I'm nicely positioned for a comfortable retirement that I hope to start in four years. I have a long term view, in spite of being 56, and I'm a techie at heart, that believes the Internet of Things is going to be a game changer that I should really should participate in. For everyone who's listening, the Internet of Things is the idea of a connected world where your thermostat talks to your chip and your clothes, talks to your this, everything, everything's talking to each other. Uh, the, either of you could come up with a better <laughs> definition of the Internet of Things, but it's the idea that everything is smart and technology. Yay. Okay. All right. If I carve out 125,000 in this in my Roth for this, it would represent less than 10% of my total investments. So, I see it as a good managed approach to taking on more risk and reward within my total portfolio. David Gardner seems quite supportive of the Internet of Things movement as a place to grow wealth, and I'm thinking he's likely right. So, I should hook my cart. Thoughts. So, um, of course I I do like and believe in the idea, getting away from phrases, sometimes buzzwords like Internet of Things, and just saying, you know, there will be a chip or should be a chip in almost anything that that is consequential. Um, a chip in, uh, you know, certainly our iPhone today, that's Find My iPhone, makes it possible for you and me to do, right through to uh, the table that's there in your corporate staff room so that people who are managing assets, the physical assets on the property, know where the table is. Um, it might sound mundane to uh, to put a chip in a just a table. At the same time, chips are so cheap; it just makes sense so that you know where everything is. So you know, less theft, uh, all kinds of implications for this. Chips inside you and me. I will be somebody who's perfectly willing to take the tiny little pinprick incision or whatever to no, no longer have to keep my driver's license. I would be happy. Not everybody would agree with this, but I would be more than happy to take, you know, my vitals in a tiny little microchip and just have it inserted in, I don't know, let's go with my elbow. So that, you know, <laughs> I can just slam down my elbow and and just uh, make my life easier. Uh, chips in everything. Um, so I, I think yes, that's the case. However, I don't think you necessarily should Think in terms of I will allocate ten percent of my portfolio to Internet of Things. What I would do is I would say um, that you should be looking at the next thirty years as an investor and asking what are the technologies and companies that will get me there. And I would pick ones that you yourself know or feel comfortable with. So you don't have to go out and find which is the next best Internet of Things company when you know that um, I don't know. This is a little silly, but Amazon is going to be selling tons of things that have chips in them, and so and you and I are going to be buying and upgrading our tables, perhaps. Um, right. So so I think that recognizing a trend doesn't mean that you have to latch onto a single company or the one. The chip company. Yeah, I think it's more recognizing the importance of that and making sure that you're invested not in Xerox, but in Amazon, as an example. So I don't. Did that answer that good question? Did I hit it at least half? Yeah, well, I, I go well, for the gentleman C. So if you're telling me that I got a C minus, then I'm really satisfied with that. No, no. I think I think one of the issues that it comes to investing in 
growth stocks is kind of the ta- the word, the, the phrase that people throw I around. I try not to use it. I know yeah. you try you know, not to you use know. it. I, that's a hang-up um, of mine, but keep going. But the idea that these are stocks that are just going to take off and head into the stratosphere. Right. Um, we all want those stocks. Like, yes, I want the stocks heading to the stratosphere, but there is a certain amount of risk involved um, with these stocks. And so, I guess for our listeners out there who are thinking, Okay, yeah, you know what? I want to invest in some really good companies that are going to take off. There's no guarantees mm-hmm. um, that they are. So, what I guess, what's some general advice from you for people who are really new investors, who are really new and are thinking, okay, I want to invest in some quote unquote growth stocks? Well, I think your first 15 stocks, and I hope you get from zero if you're at zero today to 15 as fast as possible. We want our cars to go zero to 60 in, I don't know, five seconds. I'd like you to, as an investor to go from zero to 15. As quickly as possible, and if that means you have fifteen hundred dollars, that means you put a hundred dollars in fifteen different stocks, and you can do that through things like ShareBuilder or other accounts you can open today. Uh, so, getting diversity, diversification right away, and then make those fifteen the fifteen that you know best. That's how you should start. Um, and if that means because you love technology or into this that you start to um, buy those kinds of companies, great. If not, that's fine too. So for most people, if we're talking about Motley Fool answers, we're talking about one answer to you: How do I get started investing? Start with stuff that you know and love, and make sure that you have a bunch of them, not just a single one. Um, so from there, I think that if you find that you're missing a lot of the key tech trends, I would say really quickly: the internet, virtual reality, and biotech and genomics are three really important trends of our time. History will look back and say this was the era. They won't say we were Generation X, Y, or Z. I don't think they'll say we were the internet generation. Uh, and That's going to continue to be very vital. So, If you find that none of your money is in those three things, I would encourage you to take, let's say, 10% of your growing portfolio and put it there. And and have fun. If, if we're totally wrong, if we blow it, that was only 10% of your portfolio. On the other hand, if you find a company like Netflix or Amazon early on, it'll grow to be a large part of your portfolio in a good way. And I'll highlight something you said when you first started addressing this question: um, having the money invested for thirty years. Mm-hmm. So, long-term horizon. This is someone who is close to retirement, mm-hmm. uh, and some people might think, "Well, I don't have thirties, but but you do." This fellow is in his fifties, mm-hmm. thirty years in his eighties. He needs his money to last a long time. So, having a portion of your portfolio that you designate as very long-term is smart, and particularly smart that he's using his Roth mm-hmm. from a financial planning perspective, because if you look at Various studies they show that when you retire, you should tap your taxable account first, then your traditional tax deferred, and then your Roth. So if you're going to do this type of investing for something that you don't need for 30 years, a Roth is a great place to do it. Yeah, good, very well put. Uh, I really want to thank you for joining us. Uh, and also, before we go, I want to mention that if you're a listener like Paul, who's looking to build a portfolio of stocks with advice from David Gardner and his team of analysts. David's service, called Supernova, is opening to new members. This only happens a couple times a year. So you can head to the website supernovaradio.fool.com and you're going to find a lot of great resources to learn more about how to invest like David Gardner. I hope you will. And thank you very much. I really so much appreciate Allison and Robert. A pleasure. Let's do it again sometime in 2016. Sometimes. Absolutely. That would be great, especially if you keep saying nice things about us. We'll do it frequently. <laughs> Truly a pleasure. And finally, a little disclosure The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we mentioned on this show. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This interview was a lot longer than we let on, thanks to the editing magic of our one and only Rick Engdahl. So, if you want to hear the full interview with David, which includes his crazy Isaac Asimov-esque prediction for the future, you'll want to download our bonus episode this week. 
Of course, if you're subscribing to our show, it'll download automatically. But if not, you'll want to head to iTunes and you should see bonus episode right next to this one. Check it out. This nation just got over its case of lottery fever because the only cure was huge disappointment. But you know what's worse than not winning the lottery? Winning the lottery! And bro's here with this week's money morons, plural, because lottery fever. That's right. So, but before the lottery was finally won by three folks, we all heard about uh, how playing it was not a great idea. I think you had a one in 300 million chance of winning. You had a greater chance of being in an accident on the way to buying a ticket than actually winning. But of course, some people do win, and they look like the smart people, right? Unfortunately, there are plenty... At least we'll tell them that in case they'll give us some of their money. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but unfortunately, there are plenty of stories of people who won the lottery but didn't do such a good job with Right. The it's called the lottery curse. So, one example, Evelyn Adams of New Jersey won it not once, but twice back in the 80s for a total of $5.4 million. Unfortunately, she was too close to Atlantic City, gambled most of it away, and a little over 20 years later, she was broke living in a trailer park. Ugh. Then there's David Lee Edwards, who won $27 million in a lottery in Florida, bought a $1.6 million house, jet, racehorses, $200,000 Lamborghini. Of course. Within the first year, he had blown $12 million. Wow. Eventually went broke, uh, lived in a storage unit, died in a hospice facility in Kentucky. Very sad. $12 uh, million dollars in, in a one year. year. In one year. That's insane. Uh, third story, Jack Whitaker of West Virginia. Now, here's a guy who was already rich. He was worth $17 million um, by being president of a construction contracting company. And then he won $315 million on Christmas Day in 2002. And he did a lot of good things with it. He um, built churches, donated money to schools. I think he bought a house for the deli worker who sold him the ticket. Um, unfortunately, though, there were all these other things that happened afterwards. Like, so... Uh, when his car was parked outside of a strip club, got broken into, suitcase, uh, briefcase was stolen, had $500,000 in it. Ugh. He was asked, why did you carry that much cash in a briefcase? He said, because I can. Strip clubs also aren't cheap. So I hear. <laughs> so I... My mom listens to this show, so <laughs> I have no firsthand experience. Uh, in another incident, two people who worked at the strip club had a plan of poisoning his drinks or and taking some money. Wow. Um, another incident after this other one, $200,000 was stolen from his truck. He eventually got it back. Um, he was sued by Caesars of Atlantic City for balancing a $1.5 million check. And there are other, other just sort of bad things that happened to people. Uh, a granddaughter dying, him being sued in various times. So in the end, he regrets winning the ticket. He said, I quote, I wish I'd torn that ticket up. Wow. So while we can um, sit in judgment of these poor people, uh, the truth is a lot of us, to some degree, will get some sort of sudden money, probably not over a billion dollars, but it could be in the form of an inheritance, a lump sum payout of a pension, lawsuit, winnings, life insurance proceeds, things like that. Um, And the evidence is not everyone's good with that money either. So one... Example is a study from Ohio State economics professor Jay Zagorski who's found that within two years of inheriting money, 30% of people have blown it. Wow. And are probably going into debt. Uh, the National Endowment for Financial Education found that up to 70% of people who receive some sort of a lump sum have blown it within a couple of years. 
Um, so what should you do? Uh, there's actually a place called the Sudden Money Institute in Florida run by a certified financial planner named Susan Bradley, and she recommends that you have a decision-free zone whenever you get sudden money. It could be a few months. I think a year is a good way to think about a really big lump sum where you say, okay, I'm not going to make any big decisions right now. But spend a little bit. Go splurge a little bit. I used in a, in a previous episode 10%. Go and splurge. But for the rest, put it off to the side. If you don't trust yourself with making a decision about the money, get a good fee-only financial planner who can help you. Um, and if you, if you know you're the type of person who is likely to blow through money faster than you should, set it up in a way where you can't get access to it easily. It could be with a financial advisor. It could be an account on which you cannot write a check or use an ATM card. It could even be an annuity, which annuities often, for good reasons, get bad wraps. Um, but it's a way of handing over a lump sum of money today in exchange for a check every month for the rest of your life. That's a good way to um, spread out that money and prevent you from spending it when you shouldn't. Um, and bringing it back to the lottery, this is where a lot of those winners have gotten in trouble. Because if you get the lottery, if you have a choice of getting a certain amount every year for 25 years or taking a big lump sum. And a lot of these people who've blown their lotteries went with the lump sum, paid a lot of taxes, and then blew it. All right. Well, thank you for introducing us to this this week's Money Morons. It's hard for me to have a lot of sympathy for them. That's but. the thing. Like, I, you know, of course, we all kind of like, oh, how could you do that? And I've, th- I've put these people in the same category as athletes. We've talked about. I think like seventy percent of NFL players are bankrupt within three years, and all the stories of the actors and actresses and musicians who've gone broke. And so there is a part of us like, ah, I don't feel sorry for you, but. I, kind of, I still kind of do, yeah. I have to say. That's yeah. sweet of you. Yeah, I'm a softie. All right, well, that's the show. I want to thank David Gardner for joining us. And if you want to learn more about David Gardner's investing style and how you can sign up for Supernova, head to supernovaradio.fool.com. There's a ton of great resources there, including videos and some stock picks and a lot of great commentary from David Gardner and his team of analysts. You'll thank me later. Supernovaradio.fool.com. Again, we're on Twitter, so follow us at Answers Podcast. The show is edited disruptively by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on. Fool on.